in our uh, prayer needs this morning, uh, I'd like to share uh, the just the the ones that I have here. Mostly thinking in terms of uh, our shut-ins and uh, Lee uh, Pollard. She's going to be coming home. She hopes this week, and so uh, be praying for that transition for her. Uh, be praying for our country, uh, and uh, be praying for also uh, that God would break the cycle of COVID and uh, we'd be done with that now. And so, uh, just those specific prayers. Other prayers this morning, maybe, that you might want to add to this list? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we come to You this morning. We first lift up our country to You. We lift up our leaders and You tell us that uh, very specifically that we are to pray for our leaders, that they would uh, yield to Your will and to Your direction and Your guidance. And so, that's exactly what we pray for. Those that don't know You, Lord, we pray would come to know You. And we ask, Father, that You would move uh, through our Congress, uh, through our governors, through our state legislatures, and and that we would be a coming to you in such a way that, that the things that we are deciding to do would be pleasing to you, Lord. And Father, that uh, you would also break the cycle of the COVID virus that's been going around, that it would cease developing new strains and that it would just come to an end. And we confidently leave that in your hands. And ask, Lord, that as it does, Terry, those that are uh, that can, uh, that get the COVID, uh, that you would touch their bodies and bring healing and relief. And uh, those that have been uh, suffering with uh, the long-term uh, side effects of it, that you would bring strength and healing to their bodies and uh, restoring their, their their natural strength and bringing them back to full health. Father, we think of the shut-ins in our church and, and we ask, Lord, that You would be with them, comfort them. And we think specifically of Lee uh, as she returns home after uh, extensive uh, leg surgery and, and then the, the long convalescent and we, convalescence. And we ask, Lord, that You would strengthen her body and give her wisdom as to what she can do, what she can't do, and then give us the ability to, to check in and, and see what she needs, uh, and that uh, we can help take care of her. And Father, as we open Your Word this morning, we ask that You would open our minds and our hearts, that we would hear Your voice, that we would hear what You have for us. Lord, we ask that You would use the, the book of Daniel as we go through it to, to encourage us as we live in a world that is, uh, as a whole does not recognize You as sovereign. And help us to live in that world in such a way that we are a witness and a testimony to You. Give us the strength to do that. Give us the guidance through Your Word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Before we do, I'm going to, I want to read Psalm 2. Uh, and uh, Psalm 2 deals with the condition of the world at this point in time uh, that the psalmist is writing, 
and and it's also prophetic in the sense of of how the world continues to act, uh, ignoring God and doing their own thing. And so, listen carefully as we read through it this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The things of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In that first section there is the idea of of, uh, the, the, the world is basically... The, the people outside of the kingdom of God. And it's saying, why do they, they rage and, 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 and come against the anointed, which would be Christ? Uh, and then it says, let us burst their bonds. In other words, let us have nothing to do with the Word of God. It restricts us. It, it's, it, we don't want its, its limitations. In fact, this idea of, of bonds is, is the hobble. Uh, if you were to hobble a horse, you put a, uh, a hobble around its leg, and it can it, it can only go its legs, and it can only move so fast. It slows it down. In other words, it says, you know, let's let's put the word behind us and let it not catch up, and uh, just leave it alone. And then it says, "He who sits in the heavens laughs," and of course that is a reflection on God. And the Lord holds them in uh, ridicule, and He says. Then he will speak to them in his in his anger or his judgment, and it says, and terrify them in his fury, saying, "As for me, this is in other words, this is God speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, I've already established who's in control. I will tell of the and then Jesus, the one in control of himself, speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your passions or your possessions. You shall break or rule them with a rod of iron. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So there's a stern warning from God to the nations of the world. You need to look to me. You need to to take my advice. You need to look at my word. You need to seek my counsel. And God is basically saying, because ultimately I am in control. And that's what we've been looking at in the book of of Daniel so far, as you've gone through the first two chapters, have been pointed out very clearly. God is sovereign. Period. He is in control. And He's not only in control of, of those who, who seek Him out. He's in control of those who ignore Him. He even uses them. And what we're finding is, is He's using King Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish His purposes even though Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's one of these guys shaking his fist at God and ignoring him. And so, what we've seen so far is, is this picture of, of Nebuchadnezzar uh, saying, hey, I'm, I'm the ruler of the world. And he's, he's swept over the, the Middle East and, 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 and into the East and, uh, and he's created this huge, 
mass of land and, and people's kingdom. And what he does is he takes the people from different places and he moves them. And what his goal is to keep them from getting together and, and creating an uprising or a rebellion, he takes their leaders and he puts them in different places. And when he finds a group of, of, of especially young men who are intelligent, can read, he brings them into his court and he trains them for three years with the intent of, of basically, I'll have to say the, the term would be today, brainwash them. He gives them uh, Babylonian names and, and uh, teaches them the Babylonian language and, and science and religion and all of these different things, trying to bring them to the, where he can see which ones he can use to continue to rule over and even expand his authority within his kingdom. Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and, and uh, Azariah, the four Hebrew young men, teenagers from, from Judah, are in this category. He brings them to Babylon. He starts to train them and they're given Bab, uh, Babylonian names. Belshazzar, Daniel. Uh, Shadrach, Hananiah. Meshach, Mishael, it was his Hebrew name. And, and Abednego, which is, was Azariah. So, we normally think about him as, 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 well, we think of Daniel, it's interesting, as Daniel, but the other ones we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, by their uh, Babylonian names. And uh, all of this, you know, takes place uh, as, as, as the foundation to what the book of Daniel is about. Well, we find out the thing that, that, that Brad pointed out last week was in God's sovereignty Daniel is given the ability to interpret dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar has a rather unique dream. And he wants all, he, he goes to all of his council, if you will, his leaders, his magicians, his astrologers, all these different people, and he says, one of you needs to come up with the answer to this. I want you to tell me not only, uh, the, the, the interpretation of the dream, you have to tell me what the dream was. And they're all saying, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. Well, God gives it to Daniel. Daniel tells him what the dream was, and then he gives them the interpretation of this statue. of, uh, And, and we won't go back into that. But it's that picture is, is that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the first one on this statue. The kingdom of gold, the head of the statue. And so... Nebuchadnezzar hears all of this, and I'm thinking that Nebuchadnezzar looks at this and says, how can I beat this system? In other words, this thing ends up with clay and iron feet that fall apart and can't stand. How can I be? He decides, he makes an image in chapter 3, we find out his golden image. He makes it from gold from head to foot. And he makes it, you look at it, he makes it 90 feet tall, but only 9 feet wide. One commentator said it would look like a missile, <laughs> almost, in the sense of its dimensions. And, and, and so, he makes this, this, uh, statue, and, and he, he tells the people that, 
uh, they're going to have to come. And he calls all his governors, his leaders, uh, his, his the people over all of the different provinces and the leaders within those provinces, calls them all together to Babylon. And he says, once he gets them together, he tells them that he wants them to bow down and worship this statue. By the way, it never tells us who the statue is of. Whether it's a, uh, a false god or if it's Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know who it is. But he still tells them, I want you to bow down to this statue and I want you to worship it. This will show, basically for him, this will show your loyalty to me. But he's also using it as a way to unify his kingdom. We've all come together from all these different spots in our kingdom and come together and we've worshipped this golden image together. And we're all, you know, he's trying to get them all of one mind and one thought. He says in verse 6, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the, the horn, he says, when the orchestra plays, I want you to bow down. And it says, when they heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the, uh, the, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He got what he wanted. Probably thousands bowing down to this statue, showing their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you've got to think about it. There was quite a threat that went with that. No bow down, you're going to die. What this fiery furnace, man, I, it was interesting to see how many people tried to figure out you know, how this furnace worked. And I, I mean, one guy was talking. I had one commentator that got into the combustion dynamics of a, of, a, of, a, of a furnace. And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter. It's there and it's working. Uh, the most logical explanation I heard about this furnace was why he would have it. It wasn't to create a death penalty thing, but that was what they used as the, the, for the bricks that were in the statue before it was covered with gold. And so uh, this furnace is there in the proximity of the thing. And he says, now that this is done, this furnace is still here, and if you don't bow down to the statue, I'm going to throw you into what I made the statue out of. You know, I'm going to, you're going to die. There's a death sentence on this. So, you think most of the people, you know, think about it, they're, they're not a, they don't have a problem with multiple gods. They, they like their, their cush jobs, and, and they like the, the, their style, their living you know, status and stuff like that. So, no problem. We'll go and we'll bow down. No just one more God. You've got to understand, though, the Hebrew people don't think that way. And this is where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this group. Somebody says, where's Daniel? doesn't tell us where Daniel is. He could have been off on King's business in, in some other way. Uh, he was a higher up. And, 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 uh, and so uh, who knows where where. Daniel is at this point, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in this crowd. And that's where we pick up at verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans, 
Now the Chaldeans were were some of the leaders of of the 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 peoples, and they were the ones that that uh, gave. Uh, they were in the list of people that that he asked for interpretation of dreams and stuff like that. And he says they came forward and maliciously or jealously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. See, there was the problem. He had raised these people up into some leadership positions, and these guys were jealous. It's an interesting thing what God has done here. God has taken these four people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what should have been a disaster for them has turned into an amazing thing. Does this sound familiar to you in another story, possibly, out of Genesis? You're called Joseph. His brothers throw him into a pit, sell him out. He gets down and he becomes a slave and, and God blesses him. Uh, and, and the next thing you know, he's rising up in the ranks. And, and uh, so God does this. He, what, he turns around what should have been a tragedy and he turns it into good. In fact, Joseph, when he meets with his brothers in chapter 50 of Genesis, actually says, you meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. In other words, God was in control even when I got thrown into the pit, into the well. And so, this is the same picture we see here. God is in control. He has raised these young men up into leadership roles and now the Chaldeans are jealous. Probably some of them have to yield to their authority. And so they said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, there is something going on here. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, they didn't bow down. They refused. Well, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 13, he was furious. He was in a furious rage. And he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Uh, to him, and so they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? Did you guys really do this? That you, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre, and in other words, he had his orchestra right there. <laughs> you know, he says, if you're ready and you hear the sound of the music, uh, then, you know, worship the image. Fall down and worship the image. I'm, in other words, I'm giving you a second chance. Nebuchadnezzar actually likes these guys. He's found favor with them and, and they found favor with him in a sense of exchange. They, they actually like each other. And he says, just just do this and everything's going to be okay. And you don't even have to do it in front of everybody else. All you have to do is to do it in front of me. Well, my orchestra plays. And 
here's their response. Because he tells them, uh, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, burning fiery furnace. And then look at this statement that he makes. Because this is really where we get into the crux of what God wants us to get out of this, I believe. He says to them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Do you realize how arrogant that is? He says, I'm, I'm the boss. I'm the top dog. I'm the, yeah. who, whose God can deliver you out of my hands? I'm in charge. Now look at their answer to Nab's question. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I'm thinking that's an awkward way of saying something. That, you know, but what they're basically saying is we don't need to answer you in this. We didn't bow down. It's, it's a fact. We didn't bow down. And so they say, if this be so, our God, when we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. In other words, you want to know what God can do to deliver us out of this and to deliver us out of this situation? Our God can do it. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But, if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your God's or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, they're saying, we have confidence that our God can deliver us, but even if He doesn't, we're going to still rest in Him and not bow down. In other words, we're, we're ready to die if that's what God decides for us. And you have to think to yourself what, what it is that has brought them to this point, why they're so adamant about it. In Exodus chapter 20, and I'm not going to look it all up for us this morning, but in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it gives us the first two of the, of the Ten Commandments. One is that you will not worship any other God. You'll have no other God before me. And the other one, the next one is, you will not make any image, graven images of me or any other. Now, before the Hebrew people go into the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' warning to them. And he says, you're going to go into a place where there's all sorts of foreign gods. You don't want to get messed up with that stuff. And he repeats these things. And he says in chapter 5, uh, verses 6 and 8, in fact, I will look at that one. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. Six through eight. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, God is saying, I'm a jealous God. And what it says here basically means is I am jealous for you to be with me. I will, he's saying, I, I have no intention of sharing you with false gods. <laughs> I am the one true God. And you will not bow down to anything, no one else, nothing else but me. No matter what it reflects, it's me and me alone. I am your God. I am the God. In verse six, uh, or chapter six, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you, uh, sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them on a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontals between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God is making it clear. I am the Lord your God. You will, you will not only see this in your own life, but you are to pass this on to your children and your children's children and so on. Side note, just real quickly. If you're going back to this, remember, what is it that got Israel captured by Nebuchadnezzar in the first place? They were worshiping false gods. This was a judgment, a punishment. And so, what basically, they're needing to get back on track. Nebuchadnezzar may have looked at, the, at what was going on and thought, hey, this is going to be an easy push. But the men that were the smartest and the best who ate right and did everything right happened to be men of the one true God. And they said, you can't sway us from that. In Daniel chapter 3, Verse 18, they said, again, just wanted to remind you what the Shadrach and Shad, uh, Meshach and Abednego said, but if not, in other words, if God doesn't deliver us out of this fiery furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, period. Nebuchadnezzar's response to that. Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, from a face of countenance and caring about what happens to them, trying to talk them into getting into this so that he can save them and, and keep them as his, his, his young men and leaders... It says his face even changed against them. Have you ever seen somebody go into that transition where they 
they they were trying to come along and say, and you you refused their help, and the next thing you know, they're angry at you, and their whole face changes, and you the sense of anger lines, if you will, and you can tell, man, they are upset. That's what this picture is. He's filled with fury. He is angry. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times. He says, "I'll show you." You know, and he gets the bellows going on that heater on that furnace, whatever that was to, to drive the air and the oxygen in that would get the heat to go up and hot. And he says it got it seven times hotter than it normally needed to be. He says, "I am upset with you. I'll show you." And he orders some of the mighty men. He says, guys that are really, it's the strong, the strongest men in his thing. Not mighty men like that David had, but mighty men meaning strong, robust men. And he says, you know, uh, in his army, and he, and, and he had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, and, and he, to take them and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were, uh, then these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. This was what was going to happen to them. What it says is they were bound and means that their hands were not free, their feet were not free, they couldn't, and they were carried like this, like a log, into the, to, to where the push-off point was to throw an offering into the fiery furnace. That's where what was happening here. So they're bound to their hands, they're bound to their feet, they're going in fully clothed and wrapped with rope, basically. And this was the, 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 the sure death sentence. Well, they're on the way in. And, and I don't need to read. You know this story. This is one of the problems with preaching through this is that this story is known so well that you know sometimes you say, how many times do I, am I going to hear this? But the bottom line was, you know what happened. The mighty men that are carrying them, they went up in smoke. This fire was so hot that there was combustion happening outside of its actual furnace area. Uh, and, and, and they, they disintegrated, basically. And it says, later down the road, they weren't thrown in. It says they fell in. And I was so caught with that word, they were going to be thrown in, but now they fell in. What happened? Well, it's because these guys were burned up. They were thoroughly bound. They just fell in. These guys went, poof, and they fell in over the edge into the furnace. What was the first thing that happened? The bounds were released. Isn't it interesting the fire could attack the ropes that were holding them? That's what it did. So this Nebuchadnezzar filled with fury, he orders their 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 death sentence, and and they were fell. Verse twenty three it says they fell bound into the fiery furnace. Verse twenty four. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, "Did we not cast three men bound into the fire?" They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Yeah, that's what we did. He answered and says, But I see four men 
unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of the Gods. There are a lot of people who try to figure out who this is. Is it an angel? Is it Gabriel? Is it Jesus Christ? It doesn't tell us for sure who it is. But with the phrase, the Son of the Gods, kind of implies that this might have been an epiphany, is what they call it, a theophany, uh, a picture of Christ protecting His church. But Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door. I don't know how close he got, but obviously not close enough to, to be consumed by it. And, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. It's an interesting phrase from somebody who is talking, who God can deliver you, to calling them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of the Most High God. Come out of there. Come out here. And then they come out. And the satraps, that's, their, that's leaders of, of different districts within the, the, the kingdom of, of Nebuchadnezzar. The prefects, the governors, and the kings, the counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. And then the details are amazing here. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Now, I'm just thinking of when I go to barbecue. I've got a Weber, and it gets hot around the edges. The heat comes up, and as I reach in to turn the meat, if I don't have a long sleeve shirt on, all my, the hair gets singed you know, on my arm. And, and you can really feel the heat, you know. It says that the hair didn't even get singed. I have a couple of, of, of mitts that I use, uh, and they've got, the, they've got burn spots on them. And I haven't even touched the fire. I haven't touched the coals. I've just gotten close. And that was, and you think about it, this fire was hot enough that those other, those mighty men were consumed instantly. As soon as they got close to it. So Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying, you know, this is after my mighty men and, and, and these guys aren't even touched by it. Their hair is not singed. Their clothes aren't singed. They don't even smell of smoke. When I'm done barbecuing, I smell like a barbecue. You know, they weren't, they weren't, they didn't even smell like they had been anywhere around this. And I, you look at this and, and you, you realize, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's saying, look at his response to this. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the kingdom's, the king's command. In other words, he set aside my command and he saved them. Blessed be their God. And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any kind of, except their own God. 
Then he says, therefore I make a decree. Any people, any nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then he, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provinces of Babylon. They even got promoted on top of everything else. God is working on Nebuchadnezzar here. He's showing him who's in charge. By the way, that's the real key thing I want you to see again. Once more, we're looking at God's sovereignty. Who is in charge of the world and all the kingdoms of the world? God is. Now, there is a question mark. Is it ever right for a Christian to disobey the law? That's no small debate in our culture, even today. What are the lines? Romans chapter 13, we, uh, verses 1 through 7 outline it very clearly that we are to be obedient to the laws of the land. Remember Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, As much as it's up to you, be at peace. Are there any exceptions? I mean, we're Christians living in a non-Christian world. We see conflict between the laws of God and the laws of man all over the place. Are there points in times where we are called to take a stand and say, this isn't true. This is what is true. This isn't acceptable. This is what is truth. I'll take two issues that are in the news right now. One is abortion. I am pro-life. Not ashamed of it. That's who I am because I believe that's what the Word of God stands in and that God is the Creator of life and that every life has value. And I believe that life begins at conception. So I am pro-life. I am also not pro-gender exchange. (laughs) I believe that homosexuality is wrong. Scripture spells it out that it's a crime against God. It's an abomination. And so I have specific things. And the law of the land is definitely against where I stand. So when I'm asked how I feel about this or think about this or think about that, I make a statement that I hope is clear. But I haven't been put on the spot in the context of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or it was do this or give up your life. I pray I have their strength to witness for God in that way. It's been no small number of people in the history of the Christian church who have. I will share with you one situation very quickly. Again, you'll have to read it uh, for yourself, but it's Acts chapter 4 and 5. 
John and Peter, in chapter 3, John and Peter uh, are preaching the Word of God and there's a lame man that gets healed and, and it causes a stir. And I won't go into all the details, but it spills over into chapter 4 of Acts. And basically, the, 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 the leadership of the, of the Hebrew people can't argue that an amazing miracle happened. So they get upset, though, with John and Peter because they're preaching Jesus Christ. And if you understand, if you look at what has been preaching, it says very clearly they've preached the arrest, the prison, uh, uh, the, the, the supernatural release, the, you know, excuse me, the, the, they, they preached the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his arrest, his crucifixion. And then John and Peter actually got arrested, put in prison. Uh, they had a supernatural release. <laughs> Uh, and, and they said, where? They went back to get him from the jail, and they said, no, they're not there. Where are they? Guess where they were? They were back on the street preaching. They were told, the reason they had been arrested was they were not to preach Jesus Christ. They were back in there. And basically, their position is, you're asking us to obey a law that comes against God because God told us to go and preach the Word. To preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And therefore, we have to honor the, God, the law of God ahead of the law of man. But you notice their response to this wasn't to run. They didn't sit down and cross their legs and, and make them pull them away. They, when they were arrested, they quietly went. When they were asked to appear before the Sanhedrin, they did. When the Sanhedrin was so afraid of how the crowd might react, they released them. You know what the first thing they did? They went back to the group of, 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 of uh, Christians. They prayed. And you know what they prayed for? Boldness to preach the Word of God. So there is a time where Christians may find they need to take a stand. And in a lot of places through history in our world, that has been a stand of life or death. In fact, we have churches even to this day, in this world today, in lands where they are persecuted to that point. That's why we have the day of, of prayer where we pray for the persecuted church. That's why we have the stuff out on the counter there that talks about the persecuted church. Ask you, if you haven't picked any of that, those things up, pick them up, read them, get into their prayer cycle because we need to be praying for them. And God would continue to give them strength. Basically, what they were teaching was that the, in fact, they they put it pretty succinctly. They said the man Jesus was the Christ. The man, God become man in the flesh, was indeed the Messiah. And not only is he the Messiah, the Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who you crucified, he says, when Peter preached about it, he says, God raised him up. And He is the cornerstone that the church is being built on. And then they said very clearly in, in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 42, there is no other name. There is no one else under whose name you can be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone has, is the only way to salvation. Anybody that tells you 
doesn't matter who you believe, what God you believe in, as long as you're faithful about it, you get to heaven. It's a lie. It's from the pit of hell. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that Jesus is the Christ God raised from the dead. That's it. Period. Jesus is the Christ, the one crucified. God raised, He's the cornerstone, and He is, is the salvation is in no one else. The church, read about it in, in, again in the beginning of, of, of the book of Acts especially, says they met together on a regular basis and they broke bread together. In fact, we're going to break bread in just a, a few minutes. To break bread is to share in communion. They shared communion together. Communion is a time for believers to acknowledge who Christ is to restate their confession of faith. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Salvation under no one else. In communion, we remember His death. Remember the fact that His body was torn The bread represents His body. That His blood was poured out. Life is in the blood according to the book of Hebrews and the Old Testament as well. And Jesus' blood was poured out. That's what we share in the cup. We represent the blood that Jesus shed for us. That He was raised from the dead. He said that as when He gave the instructions about sharing communion, He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. I'm not going to be doing this until I come again and share it with you. So, not only do we know that Jesus is buried, raised, and ascended to heaven, according to Scripture, but that He's what? Coming back. All of this we share together in communion. I'd like to, in fact, prepare our hearts for communion uh, by singing this morning. And and again, this picture, uh, you know, what is communion for? It's for the believers that come together who have confessed Christ as their Savior. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, accepted in His heart. And, and you know, confirm what Scripture says in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So we'll share our communion song. We're still doing self-service up here. Uh, we have the packets on one side, the, the cups and two... Uh, cups together, uh, one with the bread and one with the grape juice. And so feel free to take from either side. And, but I will ask you to come up and, and get the elements yourself.
phrase, there's nothing that can pluck us from His hand. Romans chapter 8 speaks to that so clearly. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus sharing the meal with the disciples, the Passover meal, He instituted the Lord's Supper. Verse 26 of chapter 26 of Matthew. Now as they came, they were eating. Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, He broke it and He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many of the forgiveness of sins. Let us share in the bread. And the cup. Jesus adds in this passage, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, we praise the Lord. He's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be in Your Word, to hear Your Word, and now to come to Your table. We share these emblems with the confidence that they represent our Lord Jesus Christ who came in the flesh died on the cross, poured out His blood to save us, that the sins of our lives, all of our sins, were laid on Him. When He said the words, it is finished, the debt was sealed. It was done. We thank You. As we rest in the truth of our salvation, we also commit ourselves to sharing that truth with others. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You for all that You have done, are doing, and are yet to do. We ask, Lord, that You would strengthen our walk and our witness for You, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we close? Thank You for being here. Lord bless. Thank you.
Again, Lord bless. Thank you for being here this morning.